We're going to continue to study, if you've not been with us, uh, called God's Plan for a Healthy Church. Through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we are in 2nd Corinthians now, so we've been at it for a while. Spiritual Warfare is chapter 10, as Paul really focuses on the last four chapters of this marvelous letter. It's a verse-by-verse study, so uh, anytime we read the Bible and study it verse-by-verse, you'll be blessed, so don't worry that you haven't been here. You'll Come away with what the Lord wants you to know from his word. It never returns to him void, but accomplishes everything he determined for it to do. So we're going to go and begin reading this morning just to conserve our time together. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you or just read from what you normally study and memorize from. It'll be a blessing to you, and I'll keep you together with verse cues. Starts out this way in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul, myself... Urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask you, verse 2, when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Verse 6, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Verse 7, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Let's stop right there. We've introduced this new section of this powerful letter by pointing out the obvious. This is a section that's very well known to many of you, I'm sure, where Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to document the reality of spiritual warfare. Apostle Paul was a soldier. We looked at that at length last time, a faithful one at that, a soldier of Jesus Christ who endured hardship in battle. In fact, from the very moment of his salvation, he was engaged in the dangerous and deadly war that we understand is spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul makes it clear what he's fighting for. Uh, in the church, he is fighting for, to safeguard the, go- the work of the gospel, to, uh, to intervene in the quenching of the work of the Holy Spirit, which was going on there in Corinth, to allow the work of sanctification to continue and to protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We also noted in our introduction uh, to these really four remaining chapters that Paul is dealing with the remnant of troublemakers in the church. And so it included some rebels, some false teachers who were always identified by their actions, those that gossip, the the discord sowers, the critical spirits. These are the fruit of the minority that still remained in the church, and they continue to resist his authority, his teaching, his guidance. And so in this final section, Paul begins to operate, if you will, in enemy territory. And although he's humble and he's gentle and he's meek, He gives very firm, direct, pointed warnings to those who remain in this hostile camp. And to help us have some understanding and some fortitude and some capability as we understand these things, these spiritual warfare things certainly are relevant for today, uh, there's going to be inevitable spiritual battles in your life, and and that's part of the believer's life on earth. We're going to see that even more clearly today. Uh, we've, We've really marked the examples of Paul. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So as you see Paul's responses to these kinds of things, they certainly can become the model for us. And so as he reveals them, we mark them, and they become handholds in the passages so you can follow along. And we're going to review these just quickly. And if you've missed any of the messages leading up to this message, you can certainly catch up on Together in the Word podcast on Spotify or 
or uh, on the YouTube channel on bringing together in the Word. So this is a summary. So really the first three steps dealing with spiritual warfare came from Paul's attitude when it comes to this kind of thing and whether it's people or in the spiritual realm or in uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places or circumstances. Paul said this, he starts at verse 1 and you can open your Bible there and stay right there. Paul said, I beg you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And we saw as he begins his, his time of really beginning to wage spiritual warfare here in the church uh, this attitude of humility is there. Paul says, I beg you. I come alongside and call you alongside. And, and then we saw the fruit of the Spirit manifested, which are meekness and gentleness. Meekness is power to control. Gentleness is refraining from doing things you could do, uh, but waiting to see if there's going to be some responses. So Paul starts that way. Paul knew his master well enough to know that's precisely how he wanted Paul to start. And then he really begins to address the issues at hand. He has been consistently attacked. And so then Paul starts, look at the last part of verse 1. He repeats their words to them. He says, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. In other words, you know, give Paul some miles and a pen, and he becomes really fierce, but bring him up next to us, and he's really mild. I, I told you last week, like that dog that gaps behind the gate until you open it and then runs with its tail between his legs. So not a flattering thing to say about Paul. The, probably one of the least of the harsh things that uh, we see in these letters but Paul just repeats them to them, and it doesn't appear Paul's bearing a grudge. He's not coming uh, and kind of displaying his hurt feelings. He's just saying, this is what's been said. He knows that they've misunderstood his compassion when he was there. Uh, he knows that they misunderstand his hesitancy to, to chase everything down when he was there with them and, and grab everybody who was uh, hostile to him. And so this begs the question, how do you go about this type of spiritual warfare? Because when this kind of thing is leveled, no matter what you do, you're kind of viewed as walking in the, in the flesh. And that's precisely what they're going to say about him. So the question is, do you defend yourself? And what's the answer to that? And so Paul has to deal very carefully with this whole thing as it becomes the model to deal with spiritual warfare. And, and so we saw in verse 2, look there if you would. I ask that, he says, when I'm present, so he's coming to see them. They know he's coming. He says that I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. So there it is. Uh, no matter what they're saying about Paul, how he's interacting with them, what he's doing with his writing or his speaking or whatever it is, they're just saying he walks in the flesh. And so Paul says, I'm going to come to you without anger. I'm not, I'm not bringing in a malice to you. I'm coming to you patiently, as we saw, and with meekness and gentleness. But I'm going to come to you, and we saw this in our introduction uh, number four that helps us win spiritual warfare. This is the character trait of courage. I'm going to come to you, he says, with courage. Uh, when all attempts at leniency and all forbearance have been exhausted and when all the efforts at patience and peace have been used up, the, the only thing left for Paul to do is protect the truth and the church and so he, uh, from the gossips and the slanders, so he's going to do it. And this whole idea is in the middle part of the verse. Look at verse two. I need not, it says, be bold with the confidence which I propose to be courageous against some. Paul says, I have boldness. We saw last time that word boldness is a warmth of words. So it, it doesn't capture it very well here in, in the English, but the idea of this is that my blood's not running cold at the thought of having to come and correct you. I, I'm not shaking in my boots about the possibility. And then he says, I'm bold with the confidence, and that word has to do with conviction. Paul says, I have conviction. I have a sound assurance that I'm right. And so uh, that conviction is sometimes translated that way. He, he has a set of standards that he functioned from, and they're rightly informed. So when he comes to the church, he says, I'm not worried that I'm going to find out I did something wrong. 
And then he has this inner assurance that the Lord has prepared him appropriately for the ministry he has before him. So both of those words together are the idea that he just lets his readers know he's prepared for whatever comes. And these things have supplied his courage. And then he says, so I propose to be, that's what it says uh, in verse 2, courageous. And then he says in this, against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. And that's the nature of the trouble in most churches. Who's it directed to? Paul says it's not everybody. It's just some although those who complain and those who sow discord and those who gossip tend to indicate it must, it's everybody who thinks this way, Paul. But Paul knows it's just a few who continue to hold on to this toxic current, and, and that current is that Paul lives like the world. Whatever it is, that they're evalu- however they're evaluating, it's just Paul lives like the world. And this takes us, by the way, really right to the heart of the conspiracy against him, that, that he's worldly and not godly. And Paul's answer is verse 3. Look there, if you would. For though we walk... In the flesh, so we're still in our human bodies, so he kind of flips it around. They say that he walks according to, the, according to the flesh. He says we walk in the flesh, but we don't wage war according to the flesh, so we don't live according to the flesh. Uh, he says he lives according to the Spirit. We've seen that over and over. We just saw it just a second ago as he approaches them. For the weapons of our warfare, he said, are not of the flesh, so I'm not going to deal with these things as the world would deal with them, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul brings humility, he brings meekness, he brings gentleness to the spiritual battle, and those are important, and he starts that way, and he brings courage, and you can't be an effective soldier if you're not courageous, and we saw that those things work in conjunction with, and this was instruction number five from last time, uh, to win spiritual warfare, and this is capability. Some things have to be corrected, and just being courageous isn't enough. You have to know what you have to do, uh, because without correcting the entire ministry is going to suffer, and so Paul knows he has to come and do the hard things. And we saw some examples of Paul's counsel to Titus and Timothy last time about how they're to go about it when they had difficult people in the church and what they had to do about that. And so we won't go over that again, but we saw that capability means you have to have the weapons and you have to have the ability and you have to know who the enemy is. And, and when there's trouble in the church, it's always the work of the enemy, even though it seems personal, even though it seems uh, interpersonal, if you will, or corporate, it's always the work of of the enemy whose purpose remains unchanged since the founding of the church. Uh, He wants to thwart the work of the gospel, uh, to quench the work of the Holy Spirit, to derail sanctification, break the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, and on and on and on. And this is what happens when when backbiting and and, and, uh, conflict and, and all of that arise inside the church. So Paul's gone into the spiritual battle before. He's taught other people how to do it. Uh, but he doesn't come with a worldly arsenal nor with worldly intent. He, he knows he's striving against unseen power. He's availed himself, we saw last time, of what he describes as if he, in Ephesians 6, 12 and following as the whole armor of God. Paul says, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, he says, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we saw that the word warfare is a noun stratia. That's where we get our word strategy. And Paul says, my strategy isn't fleshly. I'm not, in other words, going to match wits with you to see who's smarter. I'm not comparing preferences with you as if they're all equal. He goes, I, I'm, not, I'm just going to come to you, Paul says, with spiritual weapons that we see listed for us in Ephesians 6, 12 and following. And with the authority we looked at last time from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He has the right to come. He has the authority to come and to oversee what's going on in the church. And he's bringing the weapons that will uh, properly do what they're supposed to do. Now look at where the warfare is focused, if you will. Verse 4. So the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What are they, Paul? They are divinely powerful for the destruction, it says, of fortresses. So we have God's power, 
for the destruction of fortresses. Catharesis is the word destruction. Uh, so it means to tear down the idea of, of dismantling something completely. So that in this warfare, what's the first thing to be destroyed? Well, according to Paul, it's fortresses. Okaruma, which is, that's, that's, can be translated in a couple different ways. The first way is, is in, in, uh, in a f- terms of function. So it's a place of protection, a place to defend yourself. So you can say, it's a fortress I'm going to run to. It can be translated also in terms of construction. So it's a bulwark, or it's a barrier, or it's a tower, or it's some place with strong walls. But the way Paul's using it here, he's using it uh, in, in a figure of speech, if you will. It's the only place this, pl- this word is used in the New Testament. And it appears that both of those translations work in a simile. And the idea is Paul has powerful weapons to destroy false arguments. And the fortress here is a place, market, where a worldly people run to defend their preferences or their wrong heart attitudes. And it's likely Paul has in mind military tactics of his period, which really demanded that after the surrender of a city, it would have its walls pulled down. We know uh, that that was the case when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Did they not? What did they do? They went around after Jerusalem was conquered. They pulled down a whole bunch of sections of wall. And when Jerusalem came, when, when the Israelis came back, uh, Jews came back to, to Jerusalem, what did the people of the, of the area tell Babylon? If you allow them to rebuild this wall, they're just going to be obstinate and refuse your rule again. And so that's the reason why it's pulled down. And, and uh, we see a lot of those examples from Roman history. That's what they would do. We see from Josephus, and uh, as he talks about Judas Maccabeus, when he conquered Hebron, it says, actually, he burned the towers, and our word, demolished all of its fortifications. So we want to make sure that it could never fortify itself again. And so how serious is this issue of spiritual warfare if Paul, if Paul uses this language? I would say it's very serious. And you can't really come away with anything else. Man's hostility to the things of God is so intense, it's so ingrained, uh, the self-justification uh, of even the contentious in the church is so deep-rooted and so entrenched and so pervasive that they feel like, this is the idea, this is where it's a simile, they feel like they're behind what they imagine to be an impregnable bulwark of self-justification, rebelliousness, or unbelief. So Paul says we have to use this language. The things, the weapons are divinely powerful and therefore the destruction of those kinds of things. There's a passage that speaks to this, which has a lot of application now as we start to experience a new administration in Washington. Uh, even with just the cabinet and some other appointments and certainly the executive orders that have come out this week. And it's from Proverbs 29.2, and it's going to lead us into the passage I want to use to explain this section. But it says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked man rules, the people what? They groan. And there's been a lot of that going on, hasn't there? As we see the fortresses that are in place that they imagine to be places of high ground and false things given as reasons. We see this as the case. And this, is go- and this is without some changes, this is what we're in for. But if you would, t- turn to Psalm chapter 2, if you would. Just hold your finger here. We'll be back in a second. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. This really describes for us and illustrates for us the type of attitude that rebellious people bring to the truth of the Word of God. And it, it's still applicable today. You can see it. It's not going to take any explanation for you to see that it's still very much at work. But again, this really will and, descri- and will, will and does describe the new era we're in now. But verse 1 says this. So Psalm chapter 2, you should be there. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? So, so the nations and the peoples, what are they imagining? Well, verse 2 says it. The kings of the earth take their stand 
And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, verse 3, so against God, against Christ, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So in other words, they think they can get it out from under the dominion of the Lord, his authority, uh, his right to rule, his right to, to set the rules. They think that they can get out from under that. How does the Lord respond to that? Well, he who sits in heaven, what's it say? Laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Hard to imagine the Lord scoffing, but that couldn't be, I can't think of a more terrifying thing for the Lord scoffing at something that's raised up against the authority. And why is he scoffing? Well, because the fortifications they're going to throw up are going to be no match for the truth. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, now this next section is verse 6, it really is speaking of Jesus, and he says of Jesus, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Mount Zion. So we're looking to the future. There's going to be an installation of Jesus there in Jerusalem. We know that that's the case. We've studied it. He said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Everything's going to be returned back to its rightful rule and rightful authority under the correct person. Regardless of what the nations may think and what they may believe. Verse 9 says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like the earthenware. So that's how the fortifications are going to end up. Crushed. Then he goes back and he gives some warning to those who lead the nations. He says, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. So in other words, understand what I'm saying and be able to put a right under, uh, understanding into your actions. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord, verse 11, with reverence and rejoice with trembling. So worship the Lord with the correct honor and the correct obedience and the correct submission he's due. And rejoice because he leads and do that with trembling because he's powerful. Verse 12, do homage to the son. In other words, give him what he's due. That he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him and mark it not in the false bulwark of self-justified sinfulness. Right? And that's what's not said, but we understand that's implied. So, it describes very vividly, I think, for us, the underlying attitude of rebellion. And although it has as its focus here, the unredeemed rebellious men and the system of man and the governments of men, the fundamental problem is still the same, is it not? Hiding behind thoughts and imaginations that are the bastions or the bulwarks of this age. Now look up at the first part of verse 5. And that really makes this very clear. So we know we're on the right track. So he's going to use the same word. He goes, we are destroying. In other words, we're tearing down, we're, we're, we're dismantling, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So he uses the same word to make the meaning clear. We're destroying, and then let's take the first word, speculations. That's the word logismos. You're probably familiar with that. That has to do with speaking. Here it has to do with reasonings and thoughts. It, it really, in general, it's the way people think. So we're going to destroy the way people think. We're going to tear it down. We're going to dismantle it. So thoughts, ideas, opinions, reasonings, philosophies, theories, ideologies, religions. It can, it can be all of those kinds of things. Whatever's raised up against the knowledge of God, that's what it means. It has to do with all those kinds of things. And those are the fortifications then, see, which men, uh, in which men hide. Ideological bulwarks, if you will. Philosophical bulwarks. And, and in their strongholds, they try to hide and they try to protect themselves from God and from his word, that's precisely what we saw here, throw off the fetters from us. Any limitations God may have put and had the right to put on mankind, moral laws, which have uh, 
uh, you know, you, you break a moral law, you're going to have consequences for that. You break a, a physical law, you have consequences. The same lawgiver gave both. So they're going to hide from God. They're going to throw off his fetters. They're going to get in these bulwarks, which they think are important, and they have their own reasonings. And, and uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, we have divine weapons that are powerful to throw those things down. So they want to hide from his God. They want to hide from his word, from the gospel, from morality, spiritual authority. That's Paul's issue here. They want to hide from spiritual authority, those in the church. They don't want to listen to what Paul has to say. And just as a footnote, I want you to notice this because this spiritual warfare is not targeting demons. And I say that because there are some churches in Lynchburg who are teaching this right now. This is very popular if you go and look. People want to translate this, that, that these fortresses are demons. And we have a lot of people who want to define spiritual warfare as chasing demons. And, and the Bible doesn't define it like that. It doesn't define spiritual warfare as taking authority over demons and sending them off someplace. Never in any of the New Testament is the church instructed to do that. The casting out of demons was an apostle gift along with other sign gifts that verified the speaker and the message, and we talked about all of that, and that authority ended with them. What it is, though, is carefully explained by Paul, which is why I don't understand why the passage is also always misdirected or often misdirected in tailing the church to take on demons. We are to take down or dismantle, not demons, speculations, logismos, which is the way people think, and even the way people think personally. It's not just always other people. It can also include you. And then it says, every lofty thing, uh, hoopsoma, that's, that's uh, actually used to describe a mountain. So uh, an exaggerated evaluation of who somebody might think they are. It's, it's again, used in a figure of speech. Some, some high place, some height, uh, or an exaggerated evaluation of what they think they've done or perhaps an inflated opinion of what they think they know. So there's a bulwark established behind falseness to protect them from the truth. And then it's a high place. In other words, they've evaluated it to be the moral high ground. We hear this a lot, don't we? We hear it a lot as it, re as it relates to the death of infants and, and Planned Parenthood. Uh, those who talk about it in our government talk about it as if this is, a, this is a required thing that people need and it's a high place, a moral high ground that we need to have because this is important for women, important for choice and all that. That's false, isn't it? That's absolutely false. However, it is a high ground, isn't it? And they've established themselves there as if somehow they're unassailable behind a bulwark of their own falseness. And we see this. We, there's a number of things we could talk about here, but I think you can see it. And so there's this idea that we're going to, that you're, the uh, weapons you have are divinely powerful to throw down speculations and then every lofty thing. So whatever mountain they may be on with this fortification, it's powerful to do that too. And so all of that is qualified as spiritual warfare because all of it has one thing in common, and it is, look at the last part of the verse, raised up against what? The knowledge of God. So, very general, very broad, isn't it? It takes in a, lot, a big path. It's, that's what speculation is. He just defines it right here. and That's instruction number six that helps us in spiritual warfare as it's related to capability, and it includes the tearing down of strongholds. Dismantling, if you will, every concept, every opinion, every reason, every philosophy, every theory, every ideology, every thought that is against God. Let's see. And that can be interpersonal. It can be you personally, it can be corporately in the church, it can be in your workplace, it can be in the government, whatever it is. If it's a fortress, it's a stronghold, and, and they're very tough. Make no mistake, they're very powerful, every one of them. They've been cultivated over a long period of time. They certainly are based on the doctrines of demons and, and speculation in the hearts of dark, uh, the darkened hearts of men. We'll see that in a minute. 
but this, this is very difficult things. And Paul talks about this kind of thing fairly often in our studies. We've it. Just to remind you, just let the Bible explain the Bible. 1 Corinthians one twenty, we see Paul say this, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now, so in other words, where's the man who thinks he knows a lot? Where is the guy who can interpret things they think correctly? Where's the guy who is a great debater, a great orator, a great motivator, thinks he's got it all together and puts it all together? And then here it qualifies, of this age. So the world system, the system of man, see, and then it says this, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And that is a rhetorical question, and what's the answer to it? Yes, he has. So the key word here, though, is this age. So the wise man described the debater of this age, the wisdom of this world that's set against what? The revelation of God or the truth of God. And he refers back to that again. If you just go forward three verses, three chapters, he says this, let no man deceive himself. So don't think somehow that this is not going to apply. If any man among you thinks that he's wise, here's the qualification, in this age, he must become what? And What's that mean? What's implied? Well, that's in the world's eyes. So if you think you're wise in the world's eyes, you think you've got all the philosophies of the world, the ideologies down, and you think you're in this unassailable tower on this high place that you think you have a moral high ground, imagine this, he says, if you think you're wise in this age, you're going to have to become a fool in this age in order to truly be wise. See, For verse 19 says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. So it doesn't hold any kind of inherent quality or value. The wisdom of this age, all these fortifications, these high places where people have insulated themselves, they think, from the true knowledge of God and the truth that God has expected men to know, is foolishness. For it's written, he, who, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows all of this, see, just like we read in Psalm 2 just a minute ago. And again, he's, and he scoffs, right, and laughs, says that's real funny, that's not going to work. The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are, here it is, useless. It's a very strong word, meaning absolutely of no value whatsoever. These things that throw themselves up against the knowledge of God, the wisdom that is of the world, above the sage, is of no use whatsoever. Now back to our passage, verse 4. He says, so Paul says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So our strategy is not a fleshly strategy, but divinely powerful, so from the power of God for the tearing down of fortresses, these high places, these, these uh, bulwarks that shield people think, they shield them from the true God and from his truth. Spiritual warfare here is defined as tearing down or dismantling fortresses, and those fortresses come in the form of, look at verse 5, speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. It's always, beloved, this is a common denominator, it's always against the knowledge of God. And it's easy to jump right into Romans chapter 1, and it's certainly intended here, I think. Um, and we looked at this at length in our verse-by-verse study through this letter, so if you were with us, you remember. But just as a reminder, verse 18 says this. It says, and, and you'll see the language is very similar. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Okay, both of those places, of course, are fortified, and we know that. But the general term for ungodliness is mean, just means that God is, God is angry because of the willfulness of men because men are not rightly related to him. That's what ungodliness means, not correctly related to God. And then it says unrighteousness, and that's related to ungodliness because when by our willfulness and our rebelliousness, when we're not rightly related to God, then we're not right related to one another or those who are around us either. 
and that's unrighteousness. So God is revealing, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, his wrath against people who show that they are like this because, he says, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they know what they're supposed to do, and we're going to see that in just a minute, but they suppress that, and they do horrible things to one another, which shows that they're suppressing the truth of God, and God says, all men have this truth. Now, what is this truth? Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And this is a very important thing to understand. We looked at this at length when we studied it. It's important to know that every single person who has ever lived, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 19, knows some things about the true God. Every single person. Everyone. Regardless of what they might say about it. Now, it won't lead to salvation, but it's enough for judgment. They understand that there is a God. That's the whole point. And God has made that evident to them. That's the only way that wrath can fall on them. If they understand there is a God and then they reject it. That's what's going to happen. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, mark it, since God created everything and everyone who's lived on it since that time, his invisible attributes, and then it describes which ones, his eternal power and divine nature. So the fact that he has power to order all things and the divine nature, which is manifested in things that have been made when you look around in other words and you stand wherever you live and you see the order and you see how it all works you are guilty because you can see that there is a divine nature eternal power in charge and in fact it makes it very clear have been clearly seen not kind of in a shadow off to the side you really have to poke around a lot to find it you know everything else otherwise looked like it was all naturalistic atheism no it looks like it's been designed, and it looks like it has a designer who has the ability to sustain it. That's the idea. And because every single person has that understanding, because of what's been made, they are, what's it say at the last part of verse 20? Without excuse. For even though, now here, here's where it really gets sticky for people. For even though they knew God, so again, he just repeats it. You knew that God existed, and you knew something of his eternal nature, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And that's what the world is like, right? They don't honor God as who he is, and they don't give thanks to him for sure. But that's what believers do. It's, it differentiates between those who love Christ and those who don't. Because you, when you love Christ, you honor him and you honor God as who he is. Christ is who he is, and you give thanks to him. So, but they won't, and that, those are trademarks of rejecting this truth. And so they became futile in their, here's our word, speculations. So in their logismos, in their reasonings, in their thoughts about the universe and about God and about how they're supposed to live and how, what morality, how, how it works and all that kind of stuff, they became futile in their speculation. Empty. So what they were thinking was foolishness. What, what, what was it becoming? It was becoming this bulwark, wasn't it? Oh, I, I don't, I'm rejecting this. I'm going I'm to imagine something else. Then it says, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, verse 22, they became, what's it say? Fools. And here's the sense of the passage, and we'll stop right there. We could spend three weeks just on this section. Everybody comes into the world knowing something about the true God, and it says what they know. And knowing enough about God to know his eternal power and Godhead to be without excuse. So they knew God, but they turned against God, and they turned their back on God, and among other things, they created gods of their own. People say, well, you know, how, do, how, does, how did man finally come to God? Did he work his way up through all the false religions and finally figure out, okay, that's a true God? No. Actually, it was the opposite. 
The true God is clear in the hearts of men. They determine that they're going to live differently, and they go down and descend into the darkness of their own mind. And in the darkness of their own mind, they have these speculations, and these are the bulwarks that become set up against the knowledge of the truth and against the revelation of the true God. So they turn their back on God. And among other things, they created gods of their own and market. They turned against the true God and they fortified themselves in, in their own false system and their speculations. But all of that thinking was happening, it says, in the darkness of their heart. Regardless, they have raised them up against the knowledge of the true God. These speculations and these reasonings. And they've raised them up against the gospel and they've raised them up against the sufficiency and the truth of scripture and against authority and against dominion and against the rule of God and against morality and all all the things that we know that the Lord has expected and has revealed to us in the word of God. So that's just obvious, right? This whole realm of divine revelation and redemption and morality, people have denied that. And the world shows why they are condemned and worthy of the wrath of God. And all the anti-God and the anti-Christ and the anti-Bible ideologies spawned in the darkness of the heart of men and put in their shape and put in their form by men, all of that is a lofty thing and a speculation that has to come down. That's your and my job. And you might say, well, I, I don't have access to these people in power. No. You don't, I, but I say to you, like I said in giving, people say, well, if, if I made more, I'd give more. And I just say, if, what are you doing with the 20 bucks you have now? And I say the same thing now. You're going to see more about this and the equipment that you have, so don't, don't think I don't feel like I'm equipped, but we'll talk about that in a minute. And I know I don't need to point out to most of you, but these kinds of things, these lofty thoughts and speculations raised up against the knowledge of God are in place in those who are in the places of authority thing. That hasn't been more clear than it has been in the last week and a half, right? I mean, we could see it if you have a biblical worldview, you've been able to see it all all along. It's in our courts, it's in our governments, it's in our universities, and one of these high places and speculation that are raised up and fortified is the high place of atheistic naturalism. Nature is all there is. There is no God. And almost every thought and that's really the unquestioned authority on which all decisions are based. You watch, a, you watch a documentary on the Antarctic, and you just listen to everything is informed by atheistic naturalism. There isn't anything going on besides what's natural, and men are here in this place, and so everything's fallen to pieces, and we've got to do something, and, and everything is reactionary to this, that this is all there is. God hasn't formed it. He hasn't kept it. He hasn't, he hasn't told us it's going to stay. You know, it's just naturalistic atheism, see? And all decisions are based there. And that is a huge fortification. Is it not a false one, but a big one, raised up in the moral high ground? So if you don't accept that, you're anti-science, you're anti-thought, you're anti-intellectual, if you don't accept that this is how it is. And so it follows then, if we see, uh, and we see this much more clearly in what's being said openly then, and allows us to listen uh, to news reports and sound bites and all of that stuff, and you look at it with a worldview, you realize This is the foolishness in the darkened heart of men being proclaimed as a place of power, insulated from any assault, and on a high place of moral uh, high ground, you know, virtue posturing and all the kinds of things we see now. This is what that's all formed with. And and anyone who believes in the God of the Bible, and this has become very clear in the last week, anybody who believes in the God of the Bible and of the gospel are irrational. 
Nancy Pelosi said that yesterday. They go to church and pray, and then when they come out of church, they pray, P-R-E-Y, on everybody else. That's a foolish thing to say, is it not? But that's precisely the problem that we have. She has established this high place where she resides on what she thinks is a moral high ground, but the truth is up and against that, and God is in heaven, and he scoffs at that and laughs, see? But if you embrace this truth, you're dangerous to freedom, and you must not be allowed to have any influence in public discourse. And, and God has no place in public life, see? And God has no place in education and no place in government and social policy and laws and courts or in determining morality. God doesn't have any place in all of that, see? If you think he does, you're irrational. And, and all this rejection of God is purported to be intellectual, of course, and scientific and to be freedom-loving. But what it really is is the love of sin. It's the bulwark of fools. It's the high tower that's become a prison that untreated will become a mausoleum, beloved, because it's not true no matter how many times you say it. And that's the battle every believer is called to engage in. And that was kind of a footnote, but I think it's worth noting. And it isn't just that, the obvious applications as it relates to the fallen world system. But it also makes its way right down into the church, which is Paul's focus. And we need to also see that these speculations can be held in our own mind. It was the whole point, wasn't it? As Paul gave instruction to Timothy, he said, for those who oppose, gently correct and pray that they may repent because they've been held captive by Satan to do his will. So it's even down to the small interpersonal relationships, isn't it? There's a fortification. There's this high tower of I'm right and I'm going to hold on to this rightness even though it disagrees with what the Word of God says, see? And we see it in the church a lot and Paul Paul is dealing with it, and, but we see this a lot in the church, elevating psychology above the Word of God. If I've heard this once, I've heard it a dozen times, that somehow the Word of God needs to be jump-started or worse, is insufficient to deal with any human problem. That's there, isn't it? I mean, that, that is a fortified high tower that is false. Or this, as it gets even more personal, placing personal preferences above the clear teaching of the Word of God. As if God's waiting for you to decide what should be done in the church so he can make his changes. Instead of just saying, okay, this is what the word of God says. This is how we deal with one another. This is what we say. This is what we don't say. This is how we live. Instead, it's just some speculation about my own personal preference and how that should be. And I don't really like that. I'm not comfortable with that and all that. So it makes its way right in. So don't think it's just, you know, oh man, the bad world system. It can be in our own mind as well. And so these types of things are really illustrated well for us in Colossians chapter 2. Again, the Bible explains the Bible. And Paul's dealing with this kind of thing. And Paul says in verse 2, he says, It's Jesus in whom, and Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, he says, I say this so no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. In other words, in Jesus, who has redeemed you, placed his spirit in you, is hidden all the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Does that sound like everything you'll need? Well, if it says all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then that's all you need, is it not? And, and then he goes on to remind them what, and what can, can so easily happen inside the church. Verse 8, he says, just brings it right down to interpersonal relationships and your own thought life. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. And here, here's the qualification. According to the tradition of men, 
and the elementary principles of the world. So again, the world system, the wicked world system that set itself up against the knowledge of God, the same world system that had descended into darkness and decided in their own speculations that this is how it really is and not how God has determined it to be. And so don't, take, don't be taken captive from the elementary principles of the world. These things that are handed down, human behavior and whatever, this is how it works. This isn't how it works. Rather than according to Christ. So in other words, exchange all of that worldly wisdom and all the philosophy and empty deception and the traditions of men and the elementary pr principles of the world. Exchange that for the fullness that's in Christ. For in him, verse 9 says, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So is he lacking anything that you need? If in Christ, all the deity dwells fully in bodily form. If Christ, in the incarnation, contains everything you need, do you need anything else? And if he's manifested himself in the word of God, does that contain what you need? Yes, it does. That's very hard to hear, isn't it? Because we are so conditioned to thinking that we have to be jump-started by the world and that somehow the traditions of men and the empty philosophies of, of psychology have to make their way inside the church or we can't possibly be whole. In him, just a reminder, Paul says, you have been made complete. So I just need more from the Lord. Well, it sounds like you already got everything. And he is the head over all rule and all authority. Just in case there was any question that there might be some rule and authority that he wasn't, that wasn't under him that we really need. So he just says it in as many ways as he can possibly say it. So here it is. Everything that seems like a rule is either verified or cast down before his authority. So you can just bring it to the word of God and we can say, okay, no, that's not right. It's very hard to say that in the church anymore. Well, that's just your opinion. I get that a lot. Well, this is what the Word of God says in that situation. Well, thank you for giving me your opinion. I wasn't giving you my opinion. I, I just read a passage to you with its clear meaning. How is that my opinion? See, and, and these things can certainly be fortified in the lives of believers and in the corporate life of the church. Anytime God's authority is substituted or God's thoughts or God's conclusions or his instructions is secondary to human thought, that's speculation that leads to fortresses and high places and every lofty and Paul is speaking from experience, isn't he? Paul had lived his whole adult life up until Damascus in one of those fortifications, didn't he? Think about it. He was born and reared in a rebellious, Christ-crucifying Judaism. He was convinced that he had merited God's salvation through his own self-righteous works and his ethnicity. Did he not? That's by his own, that his, his, he admitted that. Paul believed that. He believed he had gained heaven by being circumcised, that God was obligated to, to put favor on him because he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, he maintained the Hebrew traditions. He pridefully boasted that he went to the right school and, and was being educated and knowledgeable, being zealous towards the law and blameless. He was a self-righteous Jew. He boasted that he did many hostile things against the name of Jesus himself. He boasted that. He trusted in the speculation and the evaluation of his own works. He, he, he was raised up speculating against the knowledge of God. He had his own proud human ideology. He had raised up himself against Christ and set himself against Christ. And he raised up a fortress and he lived in it. But he didn't know he'd been deceived. And he was locked in an ideology that was going to lead him straight to hell. And then he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And Jesus, like we read in Psalm 2, brought the rod of iron and what did he do to the fortress? 
he knocked it flat. And he was led captive to Jesus, and the high places he thought were unassailable were all destroyed by the power of God. So Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. And, and that same power was available to Paul, and he knew this as he approached the Corinthian church, and it's available to you, beloved, as you deal with fortresses and speculations in your own life and in the world that's around you. And all warfare, all spiritual warfare, is aimed at smashing the fortresses of human reasoning against God. Whether it's right down in your own personal thought life where nobody sees, or in interpersonal relationships, or at the workplace, or at the local government level, or at the national government level, or in the world, or wherever it is, wherever the Lord's put you in a sphere, all of that spiritual warfare is aimed at smashing the fortresses of human reasoning against God. And they don't come down easily in the mind, in the church, or in the world around us. And you don't play games on the surface with them. You don't fight worldly philosophy and nihilism with worldly philosophy. Okay? You, you need powerful weapons. And that last part of verse 5, look there if you would. We're taking thought, every thought captive to the, to the obedience of Christ. So not only does he say you have to take down strongholds, and every place people try to secure themselves over and against the knowledge of God and raise up this moral high ground, somehow they think they're where they need to be, but also take every, it says, thought captive and that word captive is just exactly like it sounds, and that's instruction number seven that helps us to win spiritual warfare. And again, it's related to capability. It's a military term used for the taking of prisoners. Taking of prisoners. Those are thoughts you're taking prisoner. And the word has just as much application in your personal thought life and in the sin issues that plague you in spiritual warfare through the flesh. Just as much application personally as it does locally or interpersonally or in the church or whatever. And it does uh, it just, just as much uh, application personally as it does with individuals in the church who resist Paul's leadership and just as much as it does in the bastions of academia and government and wherever deceptive philosophies reign in prideful arrogance. See, And you might think, well, I, you know, I don't, how can I get there? Well, you're going to have to start wherever the Lord has put you and maybe he's going to bring you to a place and you'll be God's man and wherever to speak the truth. And the effort is to capture all these falsities, all these thoughts, personal or public, as prisoners. But mark it, unlike some ancient and modern armies that treat prisoners of warfare harshly, what's the last part of verse 5 says? We're taking every thought captive to the what? Obedience of Christ. The great conqueror takes captives and installs them in his own service. See, we're not, we're not tearing down uh, foundations and bastions and towers to make them feel badly or to show them that we're smarter than they are. That sometimes becomes what we do, isn't it, when we answer? Particularly when it, we think it's, we're, we're, we're separated by social media. We, we want them to be taken down and we want them to know as they fall that we were a lot smarter than they were. That's not the issue. We want to see them and we don't do it in such a way that they come to faith. And this certainly could be portrayed as conversion for those who were once far off and rebellious, like Romans 1.5 says, those who were once far off through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience market of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. What, what's our purpose? Our purpose in, in throwing down the falsehoods and the bastions and, and the high places where the people have insulated themselves from the word of God and the authority of God and the knowledge of God and the morals of God and all of that. See, we want to see obedience of faith. And, and Romans 16.26 again 
the, the, the word, the gospel is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to what's it, what's it supposed to lead to? Obedience of faith. See, taking captive every thought and bringing them into the obedience of faith. But beloved, it, it also relates to our own personal thoughts that take us down the road to more untruths. Telling ourselves that our sin isn't a big deal or that God doesn't care about our stubbornness or immorality or allowing our thoughts to carry us down the road to depression because all of those thoughts can be taken captive too. See, they're not immune. The things that take us down roads in the wrong direction, away from God's truth, they're all exactly the same. They've set themselves up against the truth of the word of God and who you are in him. So it has a very personal application here. And regardless of that application, there, there's only one way to destroy error. How are thoughts and pride and error that turn into strongholds, which get lifted up and become bastions of humanism that will eventually be mausoleums, how are they thrown down? Truth. They're thrown down with truth. And that's instruction number eight that helps us win spiritual warfare. And again, it's related to capability. You have to be, beloved, equipped with the truth. And I say this in all love, but the modern church has a very difficult time with this. It's not because it's complicated. It's because they just don't read it. It sits on the shelf, and they open it briefly for a time at church, and then not again. How in the world are you going to know the truth that you need to know if you're not spending any time in his revealed truth? And we're done today because we're out of time. So I'll just say, when you look at Ephesians 6 and you see the Christian soldier, and we looked at this last week, he's seen with all his clothing, and then it says he has one weapon. What's that weapon, Ephesians six seventeen, The sword of the Spirit, which is the? That's right. The Word of God. Beloved, you don't fight the spiritual warfare with the weapons of the world. Mark this. The best debater doesn't win the spiritual fight. Spiritual, that, that's bringing worldly weapons to a worldly battle. I'm not saying you shouldn't be able to articulate your thoughts. The Lord's going to put you in a place where you can. But you only have one source of truth, and it's not coming from between your own ears. Your reasoning is not going to do it. Carefully speaking the word of truth, and it's like a sword that darts in and does exactly what it's supposed to do. See, the spiritual warfare that you fight is a warfare that's fought at the level of the heart. No matter who it is, no matter how high up in government they are, no matter what they say, how powerful they believe they are to be, how much high ground they think they have and moral high ground and virtue signaling and how they make you feel badly and they think they've insulated themselves from the truth of God's word and they want to insulate you from any input. Listen, no matter what, the truth is the truth and it's powerful. How powerful is it? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. Don't forget this. For the word of God is living and active and mark it. Here's the same kind of language. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joint and marrow, and to judge the thoughts and intentions of what? Of the heart. The truth is there for your understanding. The truth is there for your immersion into it. And it has the answers, clear answers. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. No creature outside of the power of the truth. 
Will all come to faith? No. Will all be turned? No. But the truth is still the truth. And able to divide those kinds of things, the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of with whom we have to do. Everyone has to deal with the Lord's truth. Everybody will answer to it. Be sure that we're doing what we're supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And what's the second part? Go and be disciples, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always. That's very straightforward, beloved, and you're going to have to know what the Word of God says, see? In 1 Corinthians 14, 25, remember this? Uh, when Paul straightened out the church and they began to do what they were supposed to do. Everybody wanted to be, everyone wanted to talk at the same time. Everyone wanted to have something to say. The church was chaotic and Paul just puts the end to all of that. Everybody had, you know, uh, they were speaking ecstatic tongues and everything. Paul was like, this is, this is nuts. People come in, they think you're nuts. He goes, when, you're, when you come to church, one person speaks, gives out the word of God. And, and then what happens? The word of God goes out and he says in, in 1425, he says, uh, the secrets of his heart. So somebody comes in, they hear the truth of the word of God. What happens? The secret of his heart is disclosed to you, perhaps not, to himself, sure. Why? Because the truth pierces right where it's supposed to pierce. And he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. I think the problem with the, the average Christian is it seems they're more concerned that they'll offend someone with what the word clearly says. They're more concerned about that than they are about just being gentle with the word of God, standing firm with the armor of God on and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and making the truth clear. No matter what, how high the bastion is, no matter how strong the argument they think it is, if it's not lining up with the Word of God, then it is false and subject to destruction. And it will all be destroyed by the Lord eventually, but you certainly may have some opportunity to speak the truth. Or maybe they're just not so concerned about offending someone with what the word clearly says or too busy being personally offensive too busy being hard on people and not speaking the truth in love so both of those things can be certainly interfering with the circle of influence the lord has for you we don't want any of those things to be true we want to make sure that we're doing what we're going to do now I, we're out of time and I, I think we've really covered as much as we should cover and i thought that on uh, in first service that it's a lot if you understand what the issue is and that this is calling everyone to be part of this, this is pretty heavy. And it calls a lot of things in our own personal life on the carpet, I think. And we had to deal with that because I had to deal with this earlier this week in my own life. So my, my encouragement, of course, is always to evaluate what the Word of God says, what does it mean by what it says, and how does that apply to me? And that's what we want to come out of this service doing. Okay? So let's bow and be dismissed in prayer and just give our... Give the rest of our day and, and this week to the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. It's such a joy to fellowship together and, and to have commonality in your son. And it's just a little small taste of what heaven will be like when we uh, all the work is done and the battles are fought. And you have brought into subjection all those things raised up against God. And, and all the right uh, titles are given to the right people. And, and the right people are in charge and all of that. But we can't win another person to faith. We can't speak truth to a fallen world. We can't. Uh, take captive every thought. We can't throw down any, every, any more high towers. And Lord, we desire very much to do that. As much as we want to see your son come and we long for that day and we know that you know what's right and when it should happen, we also long for another season for the ones that we know we need to speak the truth to. So Father, I pray that you make that clear to us, each of us right now.
And that's our prayer today, Lord. We just want to be conformed to your image as we see what we're supposed to look like. We want to be more like that. Mature believers operating in love, giving out the truth, and knowing that it is the truth and it has power. It's divine power throwing down of strongholds, big strongholds, and high, these high lofty areas, and we can take captive those thoughts and bring them into submission to you, your son. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.